Hello, and welcome to the Blockchain.com podcast. My name is Nick Carey, co-founder and vice chairman of Blockchain.com. Here at Blockchain.com, we believe in the potential of blockchain technology to improve the state of the world. Now, while cryptocurrencies can radically transform community access to financial products and services, the core technology of public ledgers can be used to build novel applications underpinned by transparency. In our latest podcast segment, Blockchain for Good, we're unearthing contemporary examples of how blockchain technology is making a real-world difference to people, communities, and charities all around the world. Today, we're joined by Alex Gladstein, Chief Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation, to talk a little bit about how cryptocurrencies and tools like Bitcoin can help strengthen civil liberties. Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we have a little tradition around here. Uh, can you tell us how you earned your first buck, your first dollar, pound, or euro? Sure. Um, and that's that's quite relevant. It's a, It was a dollar, which puts me in a very <laughs> privileged uh, position. Most people earn uh, their first unit of currency in something that's nowhere near as, as, as strong as the dollar. Um, so for me, the, the dollar was a desirable thing. It was not something that... Uh, <laughs> That I felt bad about, um, but a lot of a lot of people, you know, it's important to note a lot of people, you know, when they earn wages uh, or do a job around the world today, they uh, they receive compensation in, a, in an extremely uh, weak uh, currency that's not very, you know, desired. Let's put it that way. Um, but for me, it was a dollar, and uh, it was, I think, to help. A f- one of my parents' friends with some computer stuff, uh, doing some computer repair type work, um, I think. But my first full time job was working <laughs> at a hard was working at a hardware store, so that's where I started to earn all the all the real dollars. Got um, it. Okay. So yeah, so those, from- were the, those were the early early experiences was uh, customer service and retail. All right, cool. So basically, Geek Squad, then uh, onward and upwards. So, um, yeah, amazing. So let's let's talk a little bit about the Human Rights Foundation. Um, can you give us sort of some background, a little bit about the origin and broadly the mission uh, for uh, HRF? Sure. So our founder is a Venezuelan human rights advocate named Thor Halverson, and he had watched things deteriorate in his country of Venezuela uh, in the early nineties. His father was imprisoned um, on sort of trumped-up charges. And as a college kid, he helped uh, get his father out of prison. Um, About 10 years later, his mother was shot uh, while she was peacefully protesting flawed election results. Uh, Hugo Chavez's administration um, shot, shot her and many other people, and she survived. But that made him realize he wanted to devote his career to supporting human rights in Venezuela. Um, people that he sought counsel with encouraged him to create a human rights group that would focus on the wider Latin America region. Uh, and then further people who <laughs> counseled him eventually convinced him that it should be a global organization. So this this would later become the Human Rights Foundation, founded in about 2005. I joined in 2007 um, as a very young uh, in turn, basically, uh, I got a full-time job in 2008 there. I've been there ever since. And what makes us unique is we focus on uh, helping people who live under authoritarian governments. Uh, that's that's our mission and our charter. So that's where our energies go to. Uh, it's by our count at this point, 
given deterioration in India and a few other places. Uh, we're probably talking um, 5.8 billion people in more than 100 countries, um, about 72% of the world's population living under an authoritarian regime where you know you don't have the same kind of property rights, uh, court systems, uh, independent media, um, ability to start an organization that can push back against the government that you might have in a place like the United States or Germany or Japan, et cetera. So it's a staggering see. statistic. And especially when yeah. I think you look at the uh, trend lines around um, the resiliency of democracies, uh, there are actually fewer democracies today in the world than at any point in recent uh, history. So I want to talk a little bit more about that. So what does the chief strategy officer uh, sort of do at the Human Rights Foundation? And uh, can you talk a little bit about the you know pressing issues and challenges that you guys are prioritizing and how you think about prioritizing those given the magnitude of the, you know, the sort of scope of these issues. Yeah, well, technically I'm the chief development officer and the chief marketing officer, and this was a way of combining them <laughs> Got uh, it. In, in a way where I could also uh, lead certain program elements. Um, I've been involved with a lot of the different programs over the years uh, at the Human Rights Foundation. I've always been involved in fundraising and development, but have also worked closely with the founder and others on a variety of uh, programs, most notably uh, Cuba, North Korea, a lot of programs that were, were on the ground, kind of technology-focused programs, which were helping get information into closed societies and closed spaces. So whether it was the Cuban underground library movement at the beginning of my career or later on uh, helping uh, with launch the Flash Drives for Freedom program, I've been very close to um, those type of, of, of initiatives where we're working with uh, dissident groups to, to actually get information in or out of a country that, that has a lot of controls. So the, the intersection of tech and human rights has always, always been on my mind. And then the one that I've spent the last five years or six years on uh, is the Financial Freedom Program, which is very related to that in terms of, you know, a new technology that is allowing uh, people to put cracks in the wall of an iron curtain. We'll put it that way. So you're frequently working um, with, uh, I would say, you know, almost politically exposed individuals or um, in some of the more, uh, you know, dangerous places and corners of the world. Um, let's talk a little bit about how uh, the Human Rights Foundation uh, is funded and um, mm -hmm. maybe talk a little bit about the journey that you guys went on when you discovered um, digital currencies and, and talk to us a little bit about, you know, uh, what inspired studying that in a more meaningful way. Sure. Well, we started with a couple hundred thousand dollars from, you know, people that, that Thor and the founding board knew and, and believed in, in them. Um, today we're a $30 million organization with close to 50 people working all around the world. So it's been quite the journey. Um, yeah, I got there again, sort of very towards the beginning where I think, I think we were four or $500,000 um, at the time was our, was our operating budget. Um, so we've grown dramatically in a lot of different ways. Uh, you know, a lot of family offices, uh, com uh companies, uh, philanthropies, individuals, uh, have, have supported us along the way. Some notable ones, uh, Sergey Brin, the founder of Google, 
um, through his family foundation has been a big supporter. Uh, a lot of companies that people would know um, have, have sponsored our, our events. You know, we're, we're an ag- advocacy first organization, but we do a lot of public awareness. We create a lot of content and, and kind of most uniquely, we, we, we do events that bring people together. So we have this Oslo Freedom Forum conference series that puts uh, sort of flips the Davos model and puts the activists on the stage instead of freezing outside and puts the billionaires and, and policymakers in the audience instead of on the stage. So we've just wrapped 15 years of that. And along the way, a lot of companies have, have found it valuable to support that, whether it be uh, Twitter, uh, Google, uh, or Meta, um, Amazon, a lot of large technology type companies, um, as well as a, a lot of philanthropies that work uh, either in civil liberties or, you know, something peripheral, let's say fighting against human trafficking or pushing for uh, press freedom. So that's that's been the, the, the journey there. And then again, over the last five, six years, we've, we've, we've created this financial freedom program to help kind of nurture Bitcoin adoption around the world and help activists use it if they need it. And that, that has eventually brought in a whole another group of different people who, who really want to support us. And, you know, a lot of those donations are coming in in Bitcoin, which is great. Um, I would I would say that a very significant amount of our revenue these days uh, comes in Bitcoin. Hmm. That's super interesting. And I've been a, a participant in one of the <sighs> Freedom Foundation's um, annual meetings. They're incredible. The, the stories that are told by activists that are fighting, uh, you know, power systems around the world and speaking truth to them um, are incredibly inspiring. So. Um, appreciate the the convening power that you guys um, are able to to bring to these pressing issues. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the the this the Freedom Financial Track. Like, how are you guys approaching that? Um, you know, how does the curriculum work, or you know, how do you think about it? And what are sort of the sort of near and medium term goals around educating um, individuals, other organizations, uh, and uh, you know, advocates out there? In terms of using tools that enable them to, you know, teleport wealth and move money and and fund their work um, without necessarily uh, having to worry about, you know, maybe having it confiscated by, you know, an authoritarian government or something like that. Sure. So as I've helped grow this program and lead it, I've tried to apply lessons from what I've learned at the Human Rights Foundation previously and what I've learned through our founder and our founding board members and our chairman Kasparov. Uh, and, and the others, the other luminaries that we work with. And, you know, a couple of those lessons include, like, don't replicate work, right? So the Human Rights Foundation was created uh, because there's a huge gap. I mean, again, the, the, there, there's a lot of money. There's a giant human rights industry, but almost all of it is spent on democracies, which makes sense because all the money comes from advanced democracies, market economies. So, you know, 95 plus percent of all the funding available for human rights comes from the United States, Europe, etc. You know, there's not a lot of money out there for supporting human rights in China. It's very, very little, actually. Even though it's the largest country and the largest human rights violator, there's, I mean, a $5,000 grant makes a massive difference for a Chinese human rights group. There's just nothing. There's just so, it's like a desert of funding. So, you know, we wanted to focus on an area that we thought was being underlooked. Obviously, this came from a personal perspective of Thor, given he didn't think people were paying attention to Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, uh, you know, during the 2000s. Uh, and, and it's again, it remains true that there's just not a lot of resources for people who are trying to reform authoritarian societies. So in creating the financial freedom program, it's kind of similar. Like, what can we do that no one else is really doing? Like, what, how can we 
use our skills to to make a difference in a way that's that's not um, replicating work of other people um, unnecessarily. And you know, the the three things we we kind of grew into they weren't like I would say they were not planned out. They just kind of happened um, because it's what was needed. Was a public awareness and education. Like people just don't know that Bitcoin and human rights are related, and that's something we've worked hard on in terms of whether it's talks, books, um, uh, all kinds of essays, uh, conference programming, uh, whatever we can to help people understand that Bitcoin is a very powerful human rights innovation. And, and it's, it's a very, very important um, mechanism for, for, for NGOs to learn how to use. Uh, number two would be training. Like, how, how do they use it? So we do a lot of hands-on trainings most of them off the record or, or, you know, not public, um, some public, but, you know, mainly just onboarding NGOs, helping them learn how to use it, helping them how to self-custody. We don't want to have people accepting Bitcoin donations to some third party um, and then having them sit in some neobank. Like, that's not the point for these groups. Like, they should, they, they, they should and they can learn how to self-custody very easily. I, I'm someone who believes that, yes, Bitcoin UX will get better. But it is not that difficult to to, to like securely store a t- a twelve words. Um, yep. I mean, look, I'm sorry. Like, I get it. Like, people complain about Bitcoin UX a lot, but like, look, everybody everybody complaining about Bitcoin UX for the most part can drive a car. Driving a car is way more complicated, <laughs> complicated and way more dangerous. And very dangerous. And dangerous. <laughs> and, and that's exactly. just one example out of many. But like, yep. even just using social media is quite complicated. You know, from zero. Um, so downloading an app and writing down some words and just maybe replicating them and putting them with someone you trust uh, and then using the app is, is something that anyone can learn how to do. They don't even need to be literate, to be honest. I mean, I've met a lot of people who can't even read who use Bitcoin. So um, I think that um, training is, is key. And the third thing we do is we, we, we sort of um, run a fund where we, we support and invest in open source software. So it's called the Bitcoin Development Fund. We give out about a half million uh dollars, you know, usually in Bitcoin. Um, uh, but that's kind of the dollar denominated account, obviously, rather amount, it sort of varies every quarter, let's say, but we've been doing it since spring 2020. We've supported uh, more than 75 projects around the world, we've given out almost $3 million worth of Bitcoin and dollars. Um, and wow. uh, we just we just continue. So, uh, the, so it's the, a grant making the, vehicle for yeah, organizations. Yeah, looking basically, like funding. we raise money from people who want us to support global Bitcoin um, adoption, training, education, etc. So, so we'll get earmarked gifts for this fund. Got it. Okay. Um, and and then usually in Bitcoin, and it's really convenient for us because then we can just it stays in Bitcoin, and then we regrant it to to wherever Burma or Gabon or wherever in Bitcoin, and it's just so much easier than using the banking system. Like the grantees, you know, we're a five one c three, so the grantees still have to fill out the same identifying paperwork that they would. It's considered a prize to receive this right. uh, grant, but like, but it's like we don't have to use the banking system. It takes like two minutes instead of like days <laughs> or whatever. It's like, it's just way, way, way better to give grants out in Bitcoin. But anyway, the the program itself, yeah, it targets, um, you know, it's basically broken up into thirds. It's like one third sort of core support for whether it's Bitcoin core or core software services, people who are working on making Bitcoin more accessible and private. The second thing would be uh, the, the, app, the apps and wallets, like basically... You know, activists are going to mainly encounter Bitcoin through mobile, mobile, mobile apps. So, how do we improve those? How do we get the? How do we get better features that they want? Um, 
And the third thing would be like educations and organizing meetups and conferences. So we're like big supporters of the Africa Bitcoin Conference, the Indonesia Bitcoin Conference, the India Bitcoin Conference, SatsCon from Brazil, like really focusing on global South communities. Also a lot of translation and education inside dictatorships. So those are the, those are the, so that's the fund. So, you know, you've got the education, the training and, and the fund, and that's, that's what our financial freedom program does. Amazing. So I think there's probably a lot of misconceptions and FUD in the market about, um, you know, crypto and digital currencies. Uh, it's not a surprise, but I was hoping you could elaborate a little bit. Um, you talk about the importance of uh, Bitcoin and human rights and that intersection um, and, uh, and civil liberties. And I was wondering if you could uh, teach us and our listeners, you know, what are the arguments you make? Um, for why uh, it's so critical that we have systems like Bitcoin to support and strengthen civil liberties uh, and human rights globally. Because I think in the press, you, you frequently read about crypto being beat up all the time. Central bankers hate it. Authoritarian governments hate it. It's banned in just a few countries. Those countries happen to be the ones with the most oppressive track record in human rights. So, um, you know, let's flipping the flipping the argument around. Um, you know, why, why is Bitcoin such an important uh, technology um, to enable uh, civil liberties and human rights? Sure. I mean, the easy answer is that money is broken. Money is broken around the world. This isn't something that's immediately visible to a lot of people who uh, you know, live in places like the United States or, or, or the UK or Germany, etc. Uh, you have about a billion people who enjoy both liberal kind of democratic government with private property rights and free speech and independent court system and a, a strong currency. So everybody else in the world, the seven, seven billion or so people outside of this golden billion, we'll say, um, they either lack a strong currency or a strong democracy. Um, and for those people, Bitcoin is very important because it gives you both political and economic uh, freedom in a way, uh, meaning um, it, it obviously over time is, is proven to be a very, very strong savings instrument, probably the best performing asset in the world in the last 10 years. Um, it is, if not probably, then certainly in the top, hand, top handful. Um, and more than that, it's accessible to anybody in the world. So while only like certain people can buy NVIDIA stock, um, anyone can, can access Bitcoin. I mean, literally anybody, uh, you don't need ID. Uh, you don't have to be a particular uh, level of wealth. You don't have to um, have a particular nationality. You don't have to have a bank account. It's truly, truly democratized uh, investment from that point of view. Um, it cannot discriminate against gender or, or your belief system or uh, whether the government likes you or not. Um, it's, it's, it's very, very powerful from, from that point of view. Um, secondly, and just as importantly, it's not a liability. It's not freezable. It's not someone, someone did not issue it. It, it is just existing like in, in, in the way that it, it, it is created. There is no centralized issuer. Um, that is the genius behind uh, Satoshi's innovation was creating a decentralized digital currency that did not have a centralized mint. Um, that was the problem with it. Digicash and everything that preceded Bitcoin, and while I certainly agree there are other cryptocurrencies that have value, and you know, certainly stable coins today, um, from, from, from the perspective of what we do, uh, this is what rem 
continues to make Bitcoin so unique is that there, there is no like group of people like debating and arguing about the issuance. Um, like obviously in Ethereum, there's like a large conversation and about the issuance and it keeps changing and it will keep changing. I mean, th- this is a currency run by folks who believe in, you know, basically scientific method, central planning, like they can figure it out and, and maybe they can, but that's not the tactic that Satoshi chose with Bitcoin. It's fixed. It's the same for everybody. And I really think that's important that we have at least one digital currency that's that's fixed like that. And that's the same for everyone, no matter what, and that nobody can change. Um, and that that results in something, you know, that we've never seen really before in terms of, um, you know, a quality uh, of monetary opportunity. Um, so it's like the network like doesn't that. know if you're, you know, they don't like it doesn't. OK, so let's say you have a ton of Bitcoin. The network doesn't care. Like that doesn't prevent you from like stopping me from using it or from getting special access to X. I think Clearly, just, you, you make these arguments so persuasively and it's so hard for people in that golden billion to really um, understand how fortunate they are to wake up and not have to be fearful every day that their accounts might be frozen and their money might be stolen because they changed their opinion about something or read a controversial book. Well, there's no, there's no classes, right? Correct. Like it's, it's, (laughs) it's both, both at the political level. Um, again, like the the network cannot discriminate, but also like, you know, if you think about other cryptocurrencies, it's not like you have to have a particular amount of Bitcoin to like participate in, in the, in the, in, you know, to stake or something like that, like where you would in other cryptos. Right. So there's not like, again, there's not like different classes of people. It's just Bitcoiners. And I think that's something that's been quite beautiful to watch is the adoption of Bitcoin communities around the world. I mean, there are, this it would really blow people away. I mean, we don't really know <laughs> how many people use Bitcoin. I mean, you guys have a better idea uh, in terms of general cryptocurrency usage, given your wallet. Um, yep. and, and then you can start looking at different uh, exchanges around the world and I mean, you know, we know clearly that there's north of 300 million, you know, let's say people that have interacted with cryptocurrency. And it might be a lot more than that. I saw some data from Bloomberg that was totally wild. I think it was a little probably optimistic. But but I think we I think we pretty, pretty clearly cross a half billion um, by next year, if not already. Yeah, and then, it's like the 300 million so far. <laughs> yeah, I and, mean, I uh, think we get to a billion users within three or four years. and. You know, what are users? I don't know. I mean, some people use use Bitcoin or cryptocurrency to save. Some people use it to speculate. Some people use it to send something cross-border. Yeah, whatever. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can use these things. But, like, this thing's growing is the point. Um, and, you know, the, the Bitcoin community in particular is obviously a smaller, more niche thing. But, I mean, it would surprise folks. Like, when I went to the Africa Bitcoin conference, it's like you learn about there's, like, Bitcoin communities in Benin, in eastern Congo, in Somalia. Like, it's both businesses that run Bitcoin services for people, but also, like, people who are focused on basically expanding the adoption of Bitcoin to their local communities. It's Yeah, it's it's truly a decentralized, you know, movement community. And I think, um, you know, you speak really eloquently about how this open financial network is inviting to everybody, regardless of the circumstances of their birth. And uh, what's cool about it is it treats everybody the same. It doesn't matter, like you said, whether you were born in the right postal code or went to the same college or have a credit score. You know, this thing uh, will will settle and clear payments on the Internet exactly the same in a non-discriminatory way for everybody. Uh, yeah. And let me give you like two or three really specific examples so that, you know, folks listening can understand this is not some like theoretical 
this is in practice. Um, Alexei Navalny is currently in prison in Russia. He's probably the most uh, prominent opposition figure to Putin and Putin's war in Ukraine. Um, the foundation he created is probably the single most effective organization in exposing Putin's crimes. They were considered an extremist organization in 2021, and they were kicked out of the country. So now they operate outside. Since 2016, they've relied on Bitcoin for fundraising. So they, they basically would get harassed when they were allowed to still be in Russia. A friend of mine is the financial director. So she would get to the office and their bank account would be like negative 1 billion rubles. Like the, the government would just kind of screw with them all the time, make it really difficult for donors to pay them. Donors wouldn't want to pay them because like if you're Russian and you send like a bank wire or you send some money to them, yeah, <laughs> the government would, knows that you did that and then, and then they're going to go after you. So using legacy legacy money was not an option really for people, you know, was was not a safe option for people to donate to them. Today, it's not even possible because they've been completely cut off from bank accounts and credit cards. So they basically have to use Bitcoin to do payroll and things like that. So that's one example of Bitcoin sustaining a very, very important civil liberties organization. You, you can see similar stuff happening in Belarus, Nigeria, where, where, you know, Bitcoin has proved vital for activist groups fighting against dictatorship and fighting for democracy. Um, you can see it being used by Hong Kongers who are pushing back against the occupation and subjugation of Hong Kong. And from like an individual experience perspective, and this, this almost stretches more to the humanitarian side, you know, I've met and talked to Venezuelans, Syrians, Ukrainians, Afghans who've, who've used Bitcoin to escape uh, yeah. repression and you, you use its remarkable technology um, to, to get out and to start a new life somewhere else. And in particular, there was one uh, Afghan woman that I work with and, and she employed a young uh, woman who had to leave Afghanistan and was able to take her wealth or earned wealth with her. And over, you know, the several years it took her to sort of settle in Germany, Bitcoin's value went up versus the dollar versus the euro. And she was able to have it. It was, it was hers. It was self-custodied. And uh, that was, that is remarkable. So I, when you hear these stories and you start to understand this stuff, yeah, you know, you need to realize that this is happening. Like, like the global activist movement and the global humanitarian movement are, are adopting Bitcoin, you know, whether you like it or not. Yeah. And I think every one of those stories uh, reminds us how important it is to um, to share those use cases uh, and celebrate them. Um, and it's you know they're leaving authoritarian uh, dictators um, and you know and using these tools to go to places um, and tell those stories. And, and we have to support them. And so. Um, just as a quick shout out, uh, Alex, where can people go to learn more about um, what uh, the Human Rights Foundation is uh, working on and, and where can we follow up with all your important work? Thank you. Yeah. So href.org, if you just want to check out the organization more broadly. Um, the Oslo Freedom Forum is at oslofreedomforum.com. Our next event is in New York City on September 28th. And our, our sort of flagship summit is in, is in Norway, uh, June 3 to 5 next year. Um, the financial freedom stuff, you can, you can go to hrf.org slash dev fund, and you can learn about the dev fund and all the things we support in the Bitcoin ecosystem there. Um, as far as my work, you can check out my books. I have written check your financial privilege, which chronicles global Bitcoin adoption around the world in all different places, Cuba, Palestine, West Africa, um, Afghanistan. It, it, it just, just my effort to kind of explore why are people adopting this thing? And it, it really gets into like monetary history and, and why money is broken around the world. And my new book is called Hidden Repression, 
And it's, it's, it's more of a zoom out on the international monetary system. And it explores how ever since World War II, the, the West has built this like debt colonialism machine. And we yep. lend uh, at high interest rates to poor countries and exploit their resources. And, you know, I'm seeing people use Bitcoin to like escape this, which is pretty interesting. So those are, those are some books I've written. Those are some resources you can do. You can follow me on Twitter at Gladstein. Um, or you can find me on Noster as well, which is uh, something I'm, I'm into. Um, not sure about threads, but I'm there. I'm there too, but I don't know, I don't know how long that's going to survive. We'll but. have you on next year and we can do a whole yeah, uh, we, recap yeah, we on see. which social media <laughs> platforms we can use to fight or, the man. I guess it's called X as of yesterday. X. Yeah, that rebrand. Yeah, you can find me on X at Gladstein <laughs> and, uh, and on Noster, uh, Amazing. Wherever, wherever you like. But thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. All right. Well, Alex Gladstein, thank you so much. Um, if anyone liked what you were hearing today, please uh, subscribe and share this podcast and um, look forward to uh, continuing to support the Human Rights Foundation's incredibly important work around the world. So thank you, Alex. And uh, on behalf of the entire Blockchain.com team, we're grateful for what you guys do. Thank you for listening to the blockchain.com podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please like and subscribe to the show. And if your friends and family are embarking on their crypto journey, why not share this episode with them? If you haven't already, visit blockchain.com to sign up for a free crypto wallet today. We've been around since 2011 and we're the world's most popular way to buy, sell, and trade crypto. See you next time.